Ladies and gentlemen, you are living right now in the Fourth Reich. And I'm not saying that lightly. Much is being made by the left, MSNBC, and others, all proclaiming on how a Trump presidency, a second Trump presidency, would be the end of democracy. And that the MAGA Republicans are challenging the very foundation of our republic. Nothing could be further from the truth. The MAGA Republicans, those who espouse the Make America Great Again philosophy, who want to secure our borders, keep and preserve our culture, uh, and keep criminals and thugs and people who have no right to be here out, are far from destroying our democracy. They are preserving it. The people who are currently in power are destroying our democracy. They're diluting our votes with illegal aliens who are being allowed to vote when they shouldn't be. They are diluting our funds by allowing people to come here who have no right to come here and have come here in violation of our laws to be put at the head of the line against people who have tried to come here legally. These people are being rewarded for their illegality by being given driver's licenses, benefits, health insurance. In many cases, being given things that are being denied people who have lived in this country all their lives. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. And you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, search out the Podbean app, our hosting service, download that and search out the Jamie Dury Show. Or you can simply use your native podcast aggregator app, Regardless of which device you use, search out The Jamie Dury Show and subscribe that way. Whichever way you choose to subscribe, you'll be able to leave comments, reviews. We need more of both. The more reviews we get, the better the show will come up in search rankings, and the faster it will grow, and the greater the offerings we'll be able to make to you. And as always, if you have a comment, suggestion, or a question, please feel free to email me directly at jamiedury.com. 1776 at gmail.com. Now, much is being made, and rightly so, of the unbelievably abundant border crossings we're having illegally along our southern border, with people coming from all manner of places throughout the world, not simply from Mexico, Central America, or South America. We have people coming from Africa, people coming from Asia, people coming from uh, Eastern Europe. How are they getting here and why? Well, they're coming because they know our southern border is porous. But while attention is focused on the southern border, what is less known is that our northern border with Canada is virtually completely unguarded. It came to my attention this morning while listening to some other talk shows with interviews from former employees of Homeland Security and immigration, that our northern border is virtually completely unguarded. There are so many people coming across the southern border that Border Patrol agents along the Canadian border have been tasked with processing people coming across the southern border virtually over the internet, whereas normally a very, very detailed debriefing would be taken of these people where every little facet of their, of their uh, persona would be gone over, extensive interviews, a detailed search of whatever they were carrying in their pockets, papers, notes, 
receipts, anything that might give them a clue as to who was financing their exodus from wherever they came and their illegal entry into the United States. All of this is being cast by the wayside. We have an abundance, probably over 35 or 40,000 now, of military-age men single, highly suspicious of being terrorists, that are now in this country. We don't know where they are. We don't know who they are. We don't know what they're doing. But you have to really fear that at some point in the future, these people will be weaponized against us in terrible, terrible circumstances. And they're often referred to as lone wolves, which is giving wolves a bad name, but they're not lone wolves. They're part of an organized plot made to give the appearance of acting alone and independently, but done with design and organized. And all this because of the current administration. Governor Hochul giving these people access to health care and driver's licenses. All these people engaged in an abrogation of their oath, a violation of their oath, a treasonous action against this country, against the citizens of it. Those who were elected by us, ostensibly to represent us, have now decided instead to represent the downtrodden, the shiftless, the lazy, the terrorists, the people who bring no skills, no benefits to this country, and increasingly, no desire to work. Administrative exceptions have been made to allow people who come here illegally to apply for work visas. Visas, Less than 2% have done so. The rest are content to sit in plosh hotels in Manhattan and collect welfare. Paid for by you and I. There's something disconcerting about that prospect. But Donald Trump is the big threat. The man who wanted to close the border to keep our country secure. The man who wanted us to be energy independent so we wouldn't have these terrorist organizations around the world flexing their muscles because we could bankrupt them, just as Ronald Reagan did back in the 80s. We destroyed the Soviet Union by bankrupting them, by outspending them, because our economy was viable and they could not keep up with our defense spending. Because to match us dollar for dollar required the Soviet Union to spend 25% of its GDP on defense, while we only had to spend 4.5%. They couldn't keep up. We prevailed upon the Saudis to pump more fuel, and so the price of oil went down, and the main source of income from the Soviet Union, which was gasoline and oil, dropped, and they were bankrupt. The Soviet Union may have a first-rate military, but it's a third-world country. It's a big gas station. And now today, with the abundance of natural gas, which everybody seems to want, the cleanest bridge fuel until we get to a renewable energy that is economically viable, we have it. We have it in abundance. We can break the energy markets by once again drilling, 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 and pumping, pumping, pumping. And if Trump gets back in the White House, we will be doing that. And so now let's segue into that, Donald Trump. Much has been made, as you know, of what's going on with the various attempts to keep Trump off the ballot. He just received a major endorsement. The second most powerful Republican in the House of Representatives endorsed today Donald Trump for re-election. 
and we're talking about Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader. Quote, I am proud to endorse Donald Trump for president in 2024. I look forward to working with President Trump and a Republican House and Senate to fight for those families who are struggling under the weight of Joe Biden's failed policies. In a statement he gave to Fox of some greater length, he said that when Donald Trump was president, American working families and American workers were thriving. Well, that's true. We're not doing it now. In this race, there is one man who has a proven track record of being able to save our country and get us back on track, Donald Trump. He's done it once before, and I know he will do it again. So we have people coming out now for Trump. And more importantly, we have other people who are recognizing that if Trump is not allowed to run, there could be severe, severe problems. Most notable among these people is former Obama advisor David Axelrod. David Axelrod was the architect of Obama's election, was his chief political advisor, and I'm sure he's still actively involved behind the scenes since the Obama people are really running the country. Everyone knows that Joe Biden doesn't even know where he is, let alone run the country. But David Axelrod has said, quote, it would rip the country apart if he, Trump, were actually prevented from running because tens of millions of people want to vote for him. And that is absolutely true. I have very, very strong reservations about all of this. He's referring, of course, to the attempts recently of several states to try and keep Donald Trump off the ballot on the claim that he violated the 14th Amendment's Insurrection Clause. And he said to CNN, I have very, very strong reservations about all of this. He says, regarding Trump, you're going to probably have to do it at the polls rather than via the 14th Amendment. Now, he goes further. He goes on to say that Trump is doing this deliberately because he's making a defense for himself. Uh, he said that the, the decisions in Colorado and Maine could vindicate the former president's claims that he is being unfairly targeted by Democrats. Quote, a lot of the motivation for Trump's candidacy was as a legal defense strategy. He wanted to set up a construct which says that they're coming after him because he's running for president and they're trying to prevent him from being president. He continued, we've run this experiment. He's only gained since he started getting indicted. What you thought might be kryptonite for him has turned out to be battery packs. And this is a big one for him. He's referring to Maine. Now, I don't agree with Mr. Axelrod that this was part of a legal defense strategy for Mr. Trump, because like many people, I believe that as Donald Trump had simply gone away and never said that he was ever interested in running for office again and just wanted to spend his billions, play golf, and live in seclusion and privacy and tranquility. None of these cases would have been brought. So I don't really think you can credibly say that this is a legal defense strategy. They tried everything to get him. They tried an impeachment on the grounds of insurrection. That didn't go anywhere. And if he wasn't announcing he was running for president, nothing else would have happened to him. 
All these things came after he announced he was running for president. Again. So, Mr. Axelrod is half right. He's right about that, but he's about the people would, would revolt and rip the country apart. He's not right about being an affirmative uh, legal strategy. But he's correct. This would be a big, big deal. Now, in other related areas, we have some information regarding Jack Smith, the special counsel. Now, you recall I did a show talking about the amicus brief that was filed by Edwin Meese, the former attorney general of the United States, when he decided that uh, he was going to challenge, joined by two constitutional law professors, one from Northwest, another one from Boston University, the constitutionality and legality of Jack Smith's very appointment. Because in order to be appointed to a special counsel position, you have to, at the time, have been an approved federal employee or U.S. attorney, meaning the president appoints the U.S. attorneys in all the various district courts, and these people are brought before the Senate. They're approved by the Senate, confirmed by the Senate, and they take their position. Mr. Durham, of the famous Durham Report, if you recall, was a sitting U.S. attorney in Connecticut at the time, and he was given authority by Bill Barr to be a special prosecutor. So he was already a sitting attorney. Mr. Smith was a civilian at the time, so he was not constitutionally appointed. He was not legally appointed. Therefore, if the Supreme Court comes to the conclusion that his appointment was illegal, virtually everything he's done would be null and void. Every grand jury he impaneled, every true bill that was voted on. This could be a very, very big deal. But Jack Smith's out there putting his foot in his mouth again. He's out there claiming and asking the Supreme Court to dismiss Donald Trump's claim of immunity. Somehow in Jack Smith's perverted mind, because Donald Trump decided to exercise every legal avenue possible to him to try and challenge an election that he still believes was stolen, that this somehow comes uh, to be the equivalent of committing crimes to stay in office. But Donald Trump didn't stay in office. Donald Trump didn't not accept the, the ultimate finding or result of an election, because if he did uh, not accept it, he would still be president or try to be. He would have refused to leave office. Donald Trump never refused to leave office. He tried every single contingency that he could during the time as the time was ticking away to 12 noon on January 20th. And when that time came, he got aboard Marine One and he left. And all the press corps snickered at him as he waved goodbye never dreaming that he'd be in the position he's in now, the number one nominee, leading all others by margins never before seen, in a bid to become the 47th president of the United States. Now, Jack Smith doesn't want him to be. So Jack Smith is talking about how if this is allowed to go forward, it's going to allow other presidents to commit crimes. No. The president of the United States, the office of the president, the person who occupies the office, has absolute immunity 
from prosecution for any crimes committed or attempted to be committed while they are president of the United States. Now, that doesn't mean like this idiot Judge Chutkin in Washington, D.C. states, which I spoke about last week, that the minute they leave office, they can be prosecuted for those crimes. No. What it means is a president can never be prosecuted for any actions or crimes that he may have committed while those things were committed when he was in office. Whether he's in office or out of office, if you're trying to charge him for something he did while he was in office, you're barking up the wrong tree. The only way to take action against a president while he's in office is you have to impeach him. And if a two-thirds majority vote of the Senate votes to impeach him, he is removed. If you fail to impeach him, he serves out his term. Once he's served out his term, it doesn't mean, well, impeachment failed, now we get to try him in court. No, it doesn't. Because any president that knew he'd be subject to criminal prosecution after he left office for something he did while he was in office wouldn't take those actions. And in many cases, those actions may be necessary ones to protect the country or to save the country in the time of a crisis. So there's no question that a president has immunity for life. Now, when I say that, I don't mean to say he has immunity for any crime or action he takes after he leaves office. If the action takes place when he's no longer president, obviously he has no immunity. But any action that took place while he was president, he has immunity from prosecution for that action or actions while he's president and after he leaves the office of, president, of the presidency. That's been understood in this country for years. It's been echoed by Alan Dershowitz. It's not going to change. Jack Smith is a piece of crap. And really, the best thing that could happen to him is that um, he steps in front of a car <laughs> on a rainy night. He is not a nice man. He's an evil man, and he's an ideologue. But I think Jack Smith is going to get his comeuppance. He's going down in flames. But I sense, uh, I sense a tide turning here. Every effort, as Axelrod pointed out, at trying to destroy Trump has backfired. He's only gotten stronger. So there is no question that by hook or by crook, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee for the GOP in 2024. And there doesn't seem to be so far any attempt to remove Joe Biden. The only thing I can figure, and everyone knows that Biden can't win now, even uber leftists like the people from the Young Turks are saying, there's no way Biden's going to win. He's an embarrassment. Everybody sees it. So why is he still around? Well, nobody really wants Kamala Harris because even though she doesn't have dementia, she's dumber than he is. Two, as I said before, Joe Biden is not running the country. So the people who are running the country with him as their installed puppet want to continue to be able to run the country. Now, if somebody else gets in on the Democratic side... They're not going to be the puppet, and so they're not going to be able to run the country. So that's the vested interest in keeping Biden. So I think what they're going to do is they're going to try and keep Biden in there as if he's running for re-election uh, for as long as they can in the hopes that something happens to Donald Trump, that either he gets derailed or 
He's not allowed to run. I don't know how long they can go with that plan because the way the numbers are looking right now, uh, Donald Trump is going to wipe out Joe Biden. But it's also apparent that if Donald Trump was somehow out of the race for whatever reason, any of the other Republican nominees would probably beat him. Ron DeSantis would beat him. Uh, Nikki Haley may very well beat him. And even Vivek Ramaswamy may beat him. He's very appealing to young people. And Robert, F., uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. may beat him, running as an independent. So we don't know. But I think they're going to try and hold on to him as long as possible, and then maybe try and pull a razzle-dazzle at the convention and nominate someone like Michelle Obama, hoping that her quote-unquote star power in the short term will carry her across the finish line before there's enough time to really dig deep into her background and expose her for the radical and racist that she is. I'm just speculating here, but I don't think Joe Biden can carry it across the finish line. And were he to do so, it would require such a concerted effort at cheating that it would make any speculations about the 2020 election uh, appear minuscule by comparison. It would have to be such a concerted effort. I think that everyone would know that the election was stolen this time around and you'd have riots in the streets. So either they're just going to have to sit back and take it and hope they can stop Republican retake of the Senate and stifle Trump for four years, but Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And unless there's unbelievably uh, widespread cheating, he's going to win the election. So this is all very interesting. But other things are happening now, which shows that there's change in the air. The U.S. Supreme Court is poised to change much of what's happening. There are three cases. Remember a few, oh, maybe about a month and a half ago, partly when I was talking about Vivek Ramaswamy, but even before then, I was saying how increasingly your lives are being controlled by the government because the Congress has abdicated in large part its right to directly legislate against the people or laws for the people and instead have created, through their legislative power, federal agencies. And they have conferred upon these agencies enormous power to control your life without you being able to go to court, appeal these things, or even being titled to a trial. And you can't complain to them because they're unelected bureaucrats. And when you do complain, they laugh at you. And when you complain to Congress, say, I'm sorry, we created them, but they're, they're on their own. We have no control over them. They just seem to be unelected evil men that walk the halls of power and do whatever they want. These are the kind of people that when you buy a piece of land that you want to build a ranch on in Wyoming to retire on, and then you're suddenly told, oh, no, it's the... Um, it's the last habitat or a prime habitat for the endangered spotted owl. You can't build anything here. These are the people that are doing that. Well, there are three cases that are going before the Supreme Court that are going to challenge the scope and power of the administrative state and may really, really seriously erode and curb the power of the federal bureaucracy, and that would be a great thing. They include the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus the Community Financial Services of America, 
the Security Exchange Commission versus Jarsky, and Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. Now, let's take each one of these in turn. Let's hit the SEC, which is the Security Exchange Commission, against Jarsky. Now, I'm going to read from an article. I'm just going to jump around to, to a pull quote here to try and give you the gist of it in the interest of expediency. George Jarsky was a head, hedge fund manager, and the SEC penalized him for violating securities fraud law. Well, whenever you violate a law, that should tell you that you need a trial to determine whether or not you violated a law, or you need to plead guilty before a court. Well, he appealed this finding because these findings were made by administrative judges. Now, the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals sided with him, and they ruled that the Security Exchange Commission violated the Seventh Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which provides the right to a jury trial. And it also found that Congress engaged in overreach by delegating its own power when allowing an agency, the SEC, to hold administrative proceedings rather than file a lawsuit in a civil court against Mr. Jarsky, which is what should have been done. The SEC had held an in-house proceeding using its own administrative law judges who work as independent officials within the executive branch who oversee internal hearings and adjudicate disputes between the agency and other parties. So they have their own little court there to try and destroy you. Now, you can have administrative trials within an agency for employees of an agency. I had a lot of friends that worked for the police department. And they used to have administrative trials in the police department. But these were administrative trials by the police department for employees of the police department. Mr. Jarsky's not an employee of the SEC. He's an independent hedge fund manager. This would be like the police department arresting people and then having their own little administrative trial outside the, the court system and just arbitrarily sentencing people. That would be like a Nazi regime. We don't have that. And Mr. Jarsky was entitled to a trial. So the Fifth Circuit sided with him, and now the SEC has appealed to the Supreme Court. So we'll see what happens. Arguments were heard on the 29th of November in this case, and there were several questions asked by several justices which give an indication of how they might rule. During the hearing, none other than Chief Justice John Roberts, not always the most conservative of the conservative majority, suggested that federal agencies have obtained more power over the public in recent years. And he asked, should that be a concern for us or a consideration? DOJ attorneys representing the SEC in the case were asked this question by, by Judge Roberts. Judge Kavanaugh also suggested to the DOJ lawyer Brian Fletcher that the Jarosky case would impact other federal agencies. I don't want you to think that it's just about the SEC. It can just go to, and it can just go to court. No, I know, he says, Federal Trade Commission and others, I'm aware, said the justice. So they wanted to try and intimidate the justices or try and make them take a moment of pause by saying the EPA could be affected here, Department of Agriculture. I mean, it's really all over. Yes, it is, because all these agencies have gotten far too much power. So, we have to sit and wait, see how that case goes on. 
Now, the other case I mentioned, one of the other cases, was the um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus the Community Financial Services of America. In this case, the federal agency, the CFPB, had asked the Supreme Court to rescind a ruling by a lower court that determined that the agency's funding structure runs afoul of the Constitution. Uh, Quite coincidentally, that ruling, which ruled against that federal agency, was also one that was handed down by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The DOJ lawyers are arguing in their petition that the ruling calls into question virtually every CFPB action since the agency's inception in 2011 under the Obama, Obama administration. No surprise there. Bureaucrats like Obama, bureaucrat lovers like Obama, a red diaper baby, wants to create another agency. Should get rid of it. The case stems from a challenge by two payday lending groups that sued to overturn a ruling by the agency aimed at combating what the agency calls unfair and abusive practices in the industry. The Fifth Circuit overturned the rule on October 19th of last year, holding in the process that the CFPB's funding through the Federal Reserve, rather than budgets passed by Congress, violated the separation of powers principle in the U.S. Constitution. I think that's a pretty fair ruling. Any agency created by Congress should be funded by Congress because the administration doesn't have the right to simply create agencies under the executive branch. They have to be created by acts of Congress. The CFBP said in its petition that the Fifth Circuit relied on an unprecedented and erroneous understanding of the Appropriations Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which requires government spending to be authorized by Congress. They trying to say in their petition that the Fifth Circuit relied on an unprecedented and erroneous understanding of the clause. Congress enacted a statute explicitly authorizing the CFPB to use a specified amount of funds from a specified source for specified purposes. The appropriation clause requires nothing more. Republicans have long opposed the creation of this agency. The Supreme Court in 2020 ruled in another case that the protection Congress originally afforded the CFPB director, who could only be fired for cause, was unconstitutional. Depending on how the court rules this term, the CFPB's future is on the line before the court. And I hope they strike down this agency as illegal because we don't need any more federal agencies. Government is always seeking to enhance the power within itself, as the second president, John Adams, said, and we need to rein it in. Lastly, the third case, which goes before the Supreme Court uh, this term, is a case called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. Let me give you a little background on that. In May of last year, the Supreme Court said they would take this case. This case is going to decide the question of whether the court should overrule the Chevron Doctrine, which has long been criticized by conservatives who call it unconstitutional. Critics object to its application 
without a clear framework to resolve statutory ambiguity, leaving too much discretion with the courts to engage in results-oriented decisioning, meaning working backwards from the result you want to achieve and trying to fashion legal reasoning or logic to justify it. The Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council case, issued in 1984, is considered a key facet of administrative law and requires courts to defer the federal, uh, the federal agency's reasonable interpretations of statutes that are unclear. Meaning in this decision, the Supreme Court gave to the agency or agencies that if agencies, whether it's the EPA or Department of Agriculture or any of these federal agencies, the Security and Exchange Commission, saying that if there are statutes in question that are unclear, that the interpretations of which are unclear, and the federal agency offers a reasonable interpretation of the statute in order to arrive at whatever ruling they want to make versus conduct of some industry or people that they regulate under the authority of their agency, that all courts are supposed to give deference to those interpretations by those federal agencies. The case, according to University of Georgia School of Law professor Adam D. Orford, is significant because the Chevron doctrine is potentially implicated any time a federal agency makes a rule to implement a federal statute and chooses to fill in gaps or do any other thing not specifically contemplated by Congress, adding that there are thousands of rulemakings by agencies every year. Yes, this is a significant problem. And you could see why a decision of this magnitude would irk conservatives and other people who are strict constitutionists, because it's really an abdication, as I said long ago, by Congress, by giving so much power to these federal agencies, and now a court giving so much power to a federal agency or agencies, to be able to make these rulings that really should be being made by courts. They're impacting people's lives, organizations' lives, people's liberties and freedoms in many cases. And these things need to be adjudicated by judges, judges who have been approved by Senates in the past. Because every federal judge, whether he's a district court judge, appeals court judge, or a Supreme Court judge, has been nominated by a president and approved by elected representatives. These administrative judges, these agencies, these are unelected bureaucrats, unaccountable to the people or apparently anybody else. So if this statute, if this uh, decision goes against them, it's big stuff. Quote, as one of the most used decision rules in federal courts, referring to the Chevron rule, any significant change to the way courts review agency rulemaking authority will have wide-ranging impacts on the functioning of the entire federal bureaucracy, particularly in a legislative environment like today's, where it is probably not possible for Congress to agree on legislation containing extremely detailed instructions on many issues that are currently the subject of regulation.
So this is interesting. We want to see how this breaks. So these are very interesting cases that are coming before the Supreme Court, which could really curtail the power of the federal bureaucracy. And I think we need that federal bureaucratic power to be sharply curtailed. Now, before I leave you today, there is some follow-up that I wanted to make on some things that happened uh, earlier, uh, I can't say earlier this year, earlier, late last year, early in the month of, of December, I believe. As you recall, in the wake of all these anti-Jewish protests and threats against Jewish students on some of our more prominent university campuses in this country, three presidents of very famous and long-standing universities were brought before Congress to testify. It was the president of MIT, the president of the University of Pennsylvania, and the president of Harvard. None of them, none of them, would actually come out and say that what was being done, the threats that were being made against Jewish students, was not a legitimate exercise of free speech and was hate speech and was calling for violence. They say it was protected under the free speech. They wouldn't take any action. They didn't want to stifle free speech. And there were calls by Representative Stefanik from New York and among others for these people to resign. Well, guess what? Within a few days, the University of Pennsylvania president resigned. Elizabeth McGill. She stepped down on December 9th, just a few days after testifying before the committee on December 5th. So I'm going to read this, some art, uh, pull quotes from this article, how this came to pass. She stepped down. She has voluntarily tendered her resignations. Now, calls for her termination increased after she and the other presidents downplayed the anti-Semitism that has been taking place on their campus all following the Hamas invasion of Israel in October. She said during a hearing before the U.S. House on December 5th that calling for genocide of Jews in some situations didn't violate the university's rules or code of conduct. Now, I don't know what situation that she thinks you could say that uh, and call for genocide of Jews, and that, won't, that, that didn't violate the university's rules or code of conduct. It tells me one of two things. Either she's an idiot or a lunatic, or those rules of conduct or codes of conduct need to be changed if something like that doesn't violate them. A day later, she changes her position. Quote, in that moment, she's referring to her testimony before Congress, I was focused on our university's long-standing policies, aligned with the U.S. Constitution, which says that speech alone is not punishable. Yes, but sweetheart, if you yell fire in a crowded theater and there's a stampede because of it and there's no fire, that's not speech alone. When you're calling for the genocide of Jews, it's the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater. Getting back to her, I was not focused on, but I should have been, 
the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. It's evil, plain and simple. In my view, it would be harassment or intimidation. So she resigned. Now, part of this was because of Representative Elise Stefanik from New York putting pressure at other representatives. And part of it came because of money. Following the testimony of these three winners before Congress, one Ross Stevens, an investor and a major donor, cut off a $100 million donation to the University of Pennsylvania because he was, quote, appalled by the university's stance on anti-Semitism on campus. Several people joined Representative Stefanik. A number of them, I have their names here, I'm not going to buy it or read it, but, quote, President McGill's testimony is a clear reflection of the pervasive moral and educational fail failures prevalent at your university and other premier universities across the country, they said in a letter. Sadly, she has shown the university and the entire world that she is either incapable or unwilling to combat anti-Semitism on the university's campus and take care of its student body. Now, what I find interesting about all of this is that although she stayed, uh, she, I'm sorry, as though she resigned and stepped down from her position as the president, she is still going to be employed by the university as a tenured faculty member at the Penn Carey Law School. Now, do you think a person this incompetent, a person this out of touch with reality, who would testify as she did before Congress, deserves to be employed by, in any capacity by a university, least of all in the law school? This is her judgment of speech and language and action, and she is the kind of person that should be teaching future lawyers in this country? I think not. So these academics, they have a little closed club like Congress and the Democrats. They protect their own. She steps down, but she's still going to get paid and still going to have a job. Now, another winner was the president of Harvard. Now, the president of MIT still hasn't uh, gotten the axe yet. We'll have to follow what's happening with her. Now, she got the axe just recently. She's resigned, President Claudine Gay. She resigned because in the aftermath of her anti-Semitic testimony, there was also many allegations of plagiarism. Plagiarism on a scale that if it were perpetrated by a student at the university, that student would probably be expelled. So let's delve into this. She has resigned, the article says, of Harvard President Claudine Gay, following allegations of plagiarism, a month after testimony before Congress, where she refused to state that calling for the genocide of Jews constituted harassment. She said, it's not a decision I came to easily. It has become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than on any individual. 
We should focus on the institution and you, Ms. Gay, because your institution is garbage. It is not the Harvard of yesteryear. It's a new indoctrination center, which bears almost no resemblance to the great university that Harvard once was. But unlike Ms. McGill, Ms. Gay takes no responsibility for the plagiarism, not accepting it, just saying, uh, because of the allegations, I, I can't serve. It's, it's detracting from the university. I have to step down. Doesn't admit to it. Takes no responsibility for the plagiarism allegations, nor does she take any responsibility for the state of campus hatred towards Jews in Israel. And just like Ms. McGill, you guessed it, Ms. Gay will remain a Harvard faculty member. Isn't it wonderful that you can be such a piece of crap, a screw-up, and a hypocrite, and still keep a beautiful paid job at a soft, cushy university? I tell you, it's only in America. Only in America. So you can be in the highest institutions of learning in this country. You can be at the pinnacle of power as a president. You can justify calls for genocide of Jews. But they want you to believe that Donald Trump is the fascist. The last person I knew of, of historical significance, that said the Jews needed to be eliminated and call for their genocide, was a little wallpaper hanger from Austria who was a wannabe German by the name of Adolf Hitler. So I guess if you're calling for the genocide of Jews, Ms. Gay, Ms. McGill, you're in good company if you want to be an evil son of a bitch. If you're an honest person, you'd admit what you did. You'd apologize for what you did. And beg forgiveness for evoking the memory of one of history's greatest mass murderers and sitting still while people, students at your university, called for a renewal of that viciousness and brutality to be visited upon present-day Jewish people. For The Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>